We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, March 1st, 2021, our first true episode of this podcast, along with Nats Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Mark, it is great to be with you on this podcast. We have an actual baseball game to discuss and overreact to. Grapefruit League opener for the Nats on Sunday afternoon, a four-all tie with the St. Louis Cardinals. Just the fact that we say tie Nothing says Grapefruit League Baseball quite like that, but it is good to have live baseball back, my friend. There's nothing better, Al, than overreacting to the first game of spring training, to the lineup, to what we saw, to all the guys who, you know, nothing against them, probably have little chance of making the team this year, but we're going to interpret anything we want from this. We're going to get upset over the fact that they blew a lead with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, you know, we're going to get upset over the fact that the Nats got screwed over in the top of the first because Jack Flaherty hit up too high of a pitch count with one out. So they pulled him off the field. They rolled over the inning. This is a new twist for, for this spring to try to keep guys healthy. And, you know, the Nats deserved to let that in and keep going. We're just going to go nuts over this. No, we can't do that. Day one of spring training. But it was nice to see them on the field playing game and with fans in attendance. Yes, there were, what, like uh, 1,500 fans or so in attendance at the game? Yeah, 1,500. And, um, you know, the hope would be that over time that starts to increase. You know, we'll see. I I think everybody, Major League Baseball, all the local communities, everyone is really curious to see now how this goes. Hopefully there are no, you know, spikes in coronavirus cases that come out of any of these places. Um, you, You know, the hope would be that this can be done safely. The fact it's outdoors helps. Most people that I could see on TV were wearing masks. Not everyone was. That may be a bit of an issue that they have to work on over the course of uh, the spring and then into the regular season. But, you know, this is the test ground for the regular season. And if they have visions of really having normal sized or close to normal sized crowds by the summer and the fall, this is where it begins now. This is the test ground for it. All right, before we truly get going, a few items of business uh, we want to get into. So we have a Twitter handle, at Nats underscore chat. Uh, We've already corresponded with a lot of you via that, but keep the feedback coming there. We have an email address, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. So if you want to speak to us in a longer form, if you have questions for us on the podcast, if uh, you are interested in being a supporter of this podcast, uh, advertising inquiries, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all the usual podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. 
We would ask you, though, if you could subscribe, rate, and review. It helps out the podcast, really helps it gain some momentum. So uh, I know a lot of you have done this already. If you haven't, we would certainly ask you to consider doing so, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. And to speak to the many of you who have done those things already, this podcast, incredibly, number four on Apple podcast list of U.S. baseball podcasts. We were top five in the country in terms of baseball podcasts the other day, having just announced that we're getting going and just having put up you know, that intro episode a few days back. So cannot thank you guys enough for the support you've already shown this thing. And uh, we'll just try to keep it going, man. It's so heartwarming and gratifying and humbling to see that kind of reaction right off the bat. You know, I think we all felt like going into this, that this had a chance to be successful. We know, as we said in the, the preview episode, that there are many of you out there who want something like this, who want good, detailed, insightful and fun analysis of the nationals on a regular basis. And, and that's why we wanted to start this thing. And so it is um, really cool to see the reaction we've gotten so far. We hope you stick with us. We hope you tell your friends and get more people on board as we uh, go through the spring and into the regular season. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I tweeted this the other day. The Nationals fan to me has been underserved in the D.C. market for way too long. And we're trying to help correct that here. With this podcast, we're going to be coming at you in the month of March, two episodes per week. And then once the regular season gets going, it is off and running new episodes the mornings after every Nats game. So literally, Nats play following morning. You've got an installment of this podcast to get into. Uh, so we're, you know, we're serious about giving you guys hardcore, in-depth Nationals coverage. And, uh, you know, it's going to be an evolving show, clearly, but it's going to be a lot of fun. So can't wait to get going here. So, all right. So for all tie with the Cardinals. On Sunday afternoon, and there were a couple of things that really stood out, you know, in watching this game, and certainly in reading what you wrote about it, Mark, on MassInSports.com. So Eric Fetty was the starter. I'm convinced in the year 2058, it will still be Fetty versus Joe Ross versus Austin both for this fifth spot in the Nats rotation. This is what like year five of this with like the same three guys fighting for the rotation spot. It never ends. It, it doesn't. It's the same three guys, and 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 you know the thing is like. In some ways, I feel bad for him. I even almost like apologized to Eric when I asked him the question after his start. Like, I feel like I ask you the same question every spring. And he smiled and he laughed. And it's like, this is kind of the, the, the story of my career now. But the thing, and, and he pointed it out, and the thing they all have to remember is they're going to need them all before it's said and done. So as much as we make a big deal over who wins this competition, who's the number five starter, and not that that isn't important, all these guys are going to make starts for them this year because others get hurt, because you have double headers and other things happen. And so you just hope that after all these years, one of them does, at least one of them steps up and says, okay, I'm ready to, to show that I can actually do this every fifth day and be successful at the big league level. We've all seen moments of this from them, but none of them have really consistently shown it yet. Yeah. So at the risk of overreacting to what we saw from Eric Fetty, I think if you have to drop this into a bucket of, was it a good day or a bad day? I mean, to me, it was a bad day. I think everyone believes this is Joe Ross's spot to lose. Fetty goes out there. He gives up one run in one inning, but he gives up a hit. He issues a couple of walks. He has a wild pitch. He throws just 12 of his 28 pitches for strikes. It doesn't seem like he gained ground in the battle for the number five spot. Is that how you see it? Yeah. If Davey Martinez has like the uh, depth chart, you know, in his, in his office where he's got, you know, one, two and three, what's the order? And let's say that Fetty went into this as number three or number two, maybe behind Joe Ross. Yeah, he didn't climb the ladder at all today. And, and, and he was frustrated himself with the way it started. His fastball command was all over the place. But I do think there was a positive to come out of it. And that was 
as he realized the fastball was not working, he turned to his cutter, which is a pitch that he tried to use a little bit more last year, but not as often. He's a sinker ball guy. Sinker's going to move, if you're a left-handed hitter, sinker's going to move down and away from you. The cutter is going to move in on the left-handed hitter. They're going to come out of the hand looking the same. They're both essentially fastballs. He thinks, the team thinks that can be a big plus for him to show two different looks like that, the ball breaking in two different directions. And what he did when he started getting that, he struck out Nolan Arenado. That's no small feat to do that, even on the first day of spring training. And then he got Paul DeYoung on a comebacker and Yadier Molina to fly out. And so he gets out of a jam. So two things that he was able to use the cutter to kind of figure that out in the mid-inning. That's a good sign. And number two, that Davey let him finish that inning. You know, the pitch count was up there. He got up to 28. He could have, as Mike Schilt did, rolled the inning over with Flaherty and pulled him, let him stay out there and work his way out of it. And he even said that could be a little boost of confidence for him at the end of the day. And just to catch everyone up, this thing of rolling over the inning has to do with the pitch count for the pitcher, correct? (laughs) Yeah. So this is something that, you know, when you're at spring training and you're watching them on the backfields or in like a minor league game, you see this happen all the time. It's in a very controlled environment. They don't want pitchers counts to get up too high. So if it gets to a certain point, the manager will say, okay, roll the inning over. Everybody comes off the field. Doesn't matter what the state of of the inning is. MLB, and I actually think it's a smart move here for the first two weeks of spring, is letting teams do this if a count gets up to 20 or more in one inning, and and then bat is over. You can't do it mid at bat. You have to wait for that bat to be over. Then the manager can say, okay, that's the end of the inning. Guy comes off the field. We start over the next inning. It's awful for box scores and keeping track of this. And like, don't pay attention to scores in spring training anyways, but especially this year, don't pay attention to it because of this. But it's designed to try to make sure nobody's getting overworked, especially in the first two weeks of camp. Yeah. So it, it makes sense. It's just kind of a quirky thing where innings end and you're like, why did that happen? Oh, they're rolling the darn thing over. I would say two things about Fetty. So number one, he's going into his age 28 season. And, you know, I think at this point, you kind of have to be realistic about what he is. I mean, he, he was a first round pick in 2014. It's now 2021. Like it's been a while since they drafted him and then been waiting on him to blossom. So I think at this point with Fetty, you're just trying to figure out some way, some role, you know, some means of kind of getting production out of him to where it's like, okay, it's not a total lost first round pick. But here's something about Fetty that I think is interesting. His overall career numbers are not good. Four years, he's got an ERA of 510. But if you just whittle it down to the last two seasons, his ERA plus, which is adjusted ERA for league and ballpark, it's actually above league average, uh, 103, 100 is average. So he's actually been an above average pitcher over the last two seasons. It hasn't always felt that way. He does put a lot of guys on base. His strikeout rate, especially over the last two years, isn't good, but he has actually not been as bad as I think some people might think the last two years. So I feel like to your point, maybe he's not your fifth starter, but is he someone who maybe can give you a hundred plus innings this season of, of some decent pitching? I think that is realistic. I don't think he's ever going to live up to having been a top 20 pick, but can he still give you some production and give you some mileage? I think that is still plausible. Yeah, I think so too. I think they're thinking that that way. And the thing that both helps him and hurts him is that still, remarkably, he has one option left. He can be sent to the minors. He's the only one from the group that can be. It is crazy. He would have used it up last year, but they actually did option him down at the end of spring training, as it were. But because of the break, the four-month break, and then bringing everyone back for summer training, and then starting the season on the roster, it didn't count, essentially, as an option. So he has one left, which means if everything works out you know, the way you think it would, and Joe Ross is your number five starter, and maybe Austin Voth is in the bullpen as a, a long man because he doesn't have options, 
Fetty ends up at AAA at Rochester. But I think it's best for him. One of the things that I think has hurt him is that they jerk him around a lot. Is he in the big league bullpen? Is he in the rotation? Is he getting called up? Let him pitch every fifth day. Let him build himself up. And then when the time comes that you need another starter, he's ready to go. I think ultimately that benefits him. Yeah, no, you're totally right about that. He has been yo-yoed back and forth, bullpen, rotation, rotation, bullpen a bunch of times. There's no question about that. All right, the other item of true note from the Nationals' Grapefruit League opener on Sunday afternoon was the lineup, okay? Uh, One of our favorite topics is going to be batting orders on this podcast. I can promise you that already. And very interestingly, Davey Martinez for this game had Victor Robles in the leadoff spot, had Trey Turner in the number three spot. Now, Juan Soto was not playing, but it was Andrew Stevenson in right field. They had Stevenson in that number two spot. I'm assuming, at least I'm hoping, that that will be where they bat Soto this upcoming year. Uh, Maybe you've heard otherwise. But Robles, number one, Turner, number three. I got some thoughts on that, but I'm anxious to hear yours. So what did you make of that? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I like it. Let's put Soto in that two spot if that's ultimately what it is. I like it. That's the lineup that I thought coming into spring training made the most sense. And I've gotten the sense from Davey that it is something that he really likes. I know he really likes the idea of Robles leading off. Now, he knows he's got to prove it, that he's got to earn that and show that he can actually get on base at a high clip to make it work. You know, he in the minors, Robles had a 392 on base percentage, and he led off most of the time in his minor league career. He's done it a little bit in the big leagues. I think it's 19 games that he started there with like a 360 on base. So he's done better out of the leadoff spot than he has being at the bottom of the order. Again, small sample in the big leagues. He's got to prove that he can do it. But the key to all of this is they've got to give Trey Turner as many opportunities as they can to bat with runners on base. He is not just a speed guy table setter. He is a run producer. He's one of the most complete hitters in baseball right now. He's not Juan Soto, but he's basically like a notch below him based on what we saw from him in last season and even leading up to that. So I think it's a smart idea. They're going to try it this spring. If it doesn't work, then they'll they'll adjust. But given especially the other lack of proven, you know, slam dunk, middle of the order guys, 
that they have on the lineup, on the roster as it stands right now. To me, Robles, Soto, Turner, or Robles, Turner, Soto, however that works out, to me, gives them the best chance of being productive and maximizing what they get from Turner and Soto. Yeah, I actually think the most encouraging thing out of all of this from Sunday was that the indication is that Juan Soto is going to be the number two batter. This is what so many teams now do. I think it's totally the right call. You get your best hitters, the most played appearances possible. A lot of people do a lot of things with batting order conversations and, you know, you need to alternate righties and lefties and, you know, you need certain prototypes in the in the one spot, two spot, three spot, etc. It's basically just about getting your best hitters, the most played appearances possible. Over the course of 162 games, each spot in the order is worth about 17 plate appearances over the course of a season. So batting fourth when you should be batting second or batting sixth when you should be batting second, that kind of a thing, that actually matters. Like that's going to cost a really good hitter dozens of plate appearances over the course of a year. So if Soto's going to bat second, I think that's outstanding news. And to your point about Robles, no doubt he's got to earn it. I think what's so interesting is they don't really have that many candidates. Like if if you're dead set on Soto number two and say Trey number three, you don't have a lot of high on base percentage guys to go to that number one spot. And so why not Robles? And hopefully he blossoms in, I guess, what'll be what his third true major league season this upcoming year. He's got to show it though. I I think this is a huge year for Robles because if he's once again, underwhelming as a hitter, three years of that. I don't think you can say anymore like, well, he's still developing or maybe he'll blossom. I think three years in, you really start to solidify. Like you kind of are what you are. If he struggles offensively again, or if he's just kind of mediocre offensively again, I think you do have to start to say like, maybe he's just one of these guys, very good defensively. Although that's another conversation. He's got to bounce back from last year, but very good defensively, but offensively, he's just not there. And, you know, we dealt with this for years with the Nats, you know, Michael A. Taylor, Danny Espinosa, excellent defensively, but not very good offensively. I'm not saying Robles is that yet, but a third straight underwhelming offensive season, I think that becomes a, a fair label. I agree. It's a huge year for him. It's time to prove what he has been expected to be all along. And remember, wasn't that long ago that this guy was touted as the number one prospect in the system ahead of Juan Soto. Everyone knew that Soto could hit. But Robles was seen as the better all-around player and all-around prospect. And that wasn't just internally from the Nationals. That was externally. Any outside publication you saw, they all felt the same way that Robles was the guy, sort of an Andrew McCutcheon type is the way he was always describing me coming up. So, yeah, I do think he needs to prove it. And you're absolutely right that if not him, they don't really have a guy that fits the description. Now, Andrew Stevenson, if he was in the lineup and when he has played, I like him a lot, what he's done. But he's not proven, and as it stands now, there is not an everyday job for him unless he's replacing Robles or Kyle Schwarber. So it kind of has to be Robles. It is the reason that I still felt like at the end of the the winter, if there was one more move I wanted Mike Rizzo to make, it was going to be for a top-of-the-order bat. If not number one, somewhere in the one, two, three spot, and it probably would have had to be at third base was the only place it could have been. And so Justin Turner, who could have hit third or second for them, a DJ LeMayhew, who could hit one or two. Those kind of guys, I do feel like that was the one piece missing that prevented this from being, on paper, at least a great lineup as opposed to a very good lineup. What they've left themselves with, it has the potential to be really good, but it's going to require some guys to step up and prove what they are, and Robles is is probably number one on that list. 
Yeah, he had a 293 on base in 2020. He's, he's got to get that like 50 points higher in order to justify being the leadoff guy. And so much of his on base is from getting hit by pitches. He doesn't draw walks. Now, it's a big part of his game, but he's going to get hurt eventually doing that too. So the on base on him, is you have to have that caveat always that if you take out the hit by pitches, it's really low. Yeah, he's like the new Don Baylor, essentially, Robles is when it comes to getting hit by pitches. So the rest of the lineup on Sunday, they went Robles, Stevenson, Turner, one through three. Josh Bell was in the cleanup spot. Kyle Schwarber batted fifth. Starling Castro batted sixth. You know, that's not a bad lineup. I mean, I know there are a lot of ifs with Bell and Schwarber, but there is some length there if those guys certainly bounce back. I got to say this, too. Josh Bell is built like a tank, man. (laughs) Just watching him, I mean... It's almost like, how can he not be someone who hits like 35 homers this year? He's just, he's built like a machine just watching him out there. I got a kick out of that. I think he's poised for a real big time bounce back year. He made Schwarber look small. Yeah. When Schwarber came up to hit the next, you know, right after him, I thought, who is that? Oh, wait, that's Schwarber. I thought he was a big guy. No, wait, he is. He's just not compared to Josh Bell. They are counting on him. Absolutely. There's a reason that they made him essentially the biggest move of the offseason. Rather than signing one of the big bats, they felt like a trade for him with the Pirates made the most sense. You look back two years ago, he was outstanding for them. Last year, not so much. I could kind of see, again, you're just watching a couple of at-bats on TV, but I could kind of see today where the concern might be. He's got a really long swing, and it basically requires perfect timing to be right. He's not a short swing guy. You know, Soto is so quick with his hands. Anthony Rendon was so quick with his hands to the bat. Bell has more of a wind up and a long swing. Now, when he hits it, it's going to go really far and he's going to hit it hard, but it does lead itself to more swing and misses. So I'm curious to see how that develops over time. But I agree. I like this arrangement ultimately where he's hitting fourth, Schwarber fifth, Castro sixth. If they don't have Robles or somebody else in the top spot and they move everybody up, now Bell's your three hitter, Schwarber's your four hitter, Castro's your five hitter. Maybe that works out, but on paper, that does not look as imposing as what we saw today. No, no, I'm with you. I think those guys, though, as the bottom third of your top six, that feels right. Like that feels like, okay, that, that that's a functional, you know, potentially really good lineup. So being that this is our first like true episode, we, we did want to catch up on a few of the major items in national spring training so far. And Look, there may be no bigger item than what Davey Martinez revealed on the day on which Nats pitchers and catchers had their first workout. Max Scherzer, it turns out, sprained his left ankle while conditioning about two weeks prior. Now, reading what you've been reporting on MassInSports.com, Mark, it, it seems like the recovery is going well. But where are we right now in terms of Max and that sprained left ankle? So he's just a little bit behind everyone else, but it, it sounds like... It's not really an issue anymore. He's thrown off the bullpen mound a couple of times, reported no issues. Again, I'm not there, so I can't see it. But by all accounts, he he is looking relatively normal out there. And they were going to meet today and decide what the next step is. That could either be another bullpen session or if they think he's ready, put him out there to face some live hitters and live BP, which his other rotation mates have already done once or even twice. So as long as this all goes the way they seem to be indicating it will, and let's say he is facing live hitters this week, maybe he does that twice, I think he maybe only misses one turn through the rotation before he would start a game probably sometime next week. I'm, that hasn't been explicitly said, but just having seen how these things work and knowing the way they build them up, that seems like where it would be. You know, we're not going to see Strasburg, Corbin, Lester these first few days either. They're going to let them 
face hitters again in, in that more controlled environment of a uh, live BP session against teammates. And then we probably won't see them till maybe, you know, the end of the week or even into next week as well. So as long as Scherzer isn't really too far behind them, I think everything is fine. But until we actually do see him on a mound, you know, pitching in something that resembles a game, you, you have to at least have at least some concern that he's not 100%. He has dealt with these little minor ailments in spring trainings before. We know what happened in the second half of the 2019 season. He had some issues that popped up. Of course, he famously got scratched from World Series Game 5 due to the spasms in his neck and or the right trap. It was always kind of mysterious exactly where that was. But of course, he came back to pitch in Game 7 of that World Series. Now, last year, his body did hold up. He made 12 starts. He gave you 67 and the third innings. The issue, if there was an issue, I mean, it's all relative with Max. He's a future Hall of Famer, but he was not, you know, A-plus Cy Young level Max. He had a 374 ERA for the year. He's going into the final season of the 70-year $210 million contract. It has clearly been one of the best big money contracts in baseball history, maybe the best big money contract in baseball history. I think the question with Max, personally, I don't worry that much about the health. I mean, you know, you do wonder, like, is the body starting to break down a little, you know, age 36 season is going into, et cetera. I think the concern more would be, are the days of Max pitching at that, you know, top three pitcher level in the sport, are those days done? Like, is he now, you know, is he a human being? Like, is he now, instead of being outstanding, just like pretty good, but not, you know, tremendously good? I think that's kind of the the concern with Max. But man, if anyone is capable of making it seven out of seven, where all seven years of a 200 plus million dollar deal, you justify that contract. This guy is, it, it is nuts with all of these failed big money contracts in baseball, that this guy has been worth every penny and more over the first six years of the deal. I still cannot get over that. He's been a steal. I mean, honestly, like objectively, he has been a steal. And not that I'm saying anybody wants this to be the case, but if he did not pitch this year, if he could not pitch this year because of injury, they would still have gotten their money's worth. It would have been a great contract. Yes. Even if somehow he didn't pitch this year. So assuming that he is fine and that, you know, like you said, I mean, for the most part, anything he's ever dealt with has been these little nagging things, his back, his knee, his hamstring, his ankle, things like that. It's never been his arm. And so as long as he can take the ball every fifth day, I think we're still going to see a, a frontline starting pitcher. Is he going to be Cy Young, Max Scherzer? Maybe that's asking a little bit too much at this point. But I'll say this. The stuff is still there. That's not a problem at all. And the competitive drive is absolutely there, maybe sometimes to his detriment, that he tries to hump it up a little too much and gets burned sometimes by trying to throw 98-99 in the first inning. And I think he's learned a little bit about how to dial it back and maybe become a little more complete pitcher at times. Here's what I'm most interested with him. When really the only times he's gotten in trouble the last year or two, it's usually a big spot either in the first inning or maybe right towards the end of his start as he's getting up there around the 100 pitch mark. And he tries to get a fastball past somebody and ends up out of the park. Now, number one, is he going to be willing to maybe turn over the ball a little sooner and not have Davey walk out to the mound and and start uh, creating a new meme with his uh, cursing at him, you know, refusal to come out of a game? So can he actually show that he's willing to admit, you know what, once I get up to that point, his, his numbers after 100 pitches last year were awful, absolutely awful. So can he accept that and maybe just be a six inning guy? And then number two, the thing I'm really fascinated by, it seems like every mistake he would make would end up over the fence. And I know he won't ever really say it, but I know him enough to know that he thinks the ball had something to do with that. Yeah. And if there really is a a dead-end ball this season, as has been uh, alleged, then maybe some of those mistakes are now turning into fly-outs at the warning track or doubles off the wall instead of three-run homers. 
And that could be all the difference for him because his bad starts are not bad across the board. It usually comes down to one or two at bats that end in a home run. So I'm really curious to see how that goes this year. Yeah, to your point about the home runs given up by Max, 2020, 1.3 home runs allowed per nine innings, his worst home run rate since 2011 which was basically before he became Max Scherzer. So if that comes down, yeah, that could make a world of difference. Real quick on Max's value. So sort of conventional thought is one war, one win above replacement is worth $8 million. Max Scherzer over his six seasons with the Nationals has accumulated 36.7 wins above replacement for baseball reference. That works out to about $294 million of value. So for seven years, $210 million. You have over the six years gotten $294 million of value, just again to highlight uh, how much of a force he has been over his first six seasons. Now, tell the truth here. Did you just calculate that on the fly as we were talking, or did you have that prepared? I had to use my phone to do the multiplication there to make sure I, I got that number right. But I've actually done that exercise before. He surpassed the $210 million years ago. Like that, yeah. that, That's how much of a freak in nature he has been uh, for the Nats. Best free agent in baseball history? Best big money for sure. I mean, you've had like one season signings that work out incredibly well. But in terms of like $150 million plus contracts, I mean, especially Mark, when you think about like how many of these big money contracts get signed and then like a year or two later, the team wants out of it. Even when guys pitch reasonably well, like Zach Granke with Arizona wasn't bad. The Diamondbacks couldn't wait to get out of that contract with Granke. You know, of course, to say nothing of like the Mike Hampton type deals, which have blown up in teams' faces. This, like you said, it's been a steal, which sounds absurd for $210 million. And, you know, for all the grief they sometimes get for for maybe making a few bad decisions, Mike Rizzo has never given out a big contract that was a bust. His busts have been one-year deals, two-year deals for guys that really didn't cost them. They've never been in a position over the last decade where they had to try to dump some guy's salary on someone else because uh, he wasn't worth it anymore and then have to trade him and, and agree to take on, you know, 50% of the salary like sometimes teams do with these trades. They've never been in that position. And that is a credit to him and, and ownership. When they have given out the really big ones, it's worked out. Now, you can argue they, that they should have signed a few more of these guys to big contracts, but the ones they have given out, they've worked out really well. So, of course, the last big money contract that Mike Rizzo signed a player to was the re-signing at Steven Strasburg in that 2019-2020 offseason. 70 years, $245 million. Year one of that contract uh, did not go so well. Strasburg ends up for the 2020 season just making two starts, pitching five innings. He undergoes surgery this past August 26 to alleviate carpal tunnel neuritis in the right hand. Uh, he was durable in 2019 and, of course, became a legend with his performance that October. But he has not exactly, of course, been a pillar of durability in his career. The comeback for Strasburg this year, I mean, it's a big-time storyline for the season overall. Where are we at, Mark, in terms of Strasburg and him coming off the carpal tunnel surgery? By all accounts, Al, he looks normal. He looks healthy. Everything has gone the way that you would want it to go. He described it as it was a 15-minute surgery and he was out of it and recovering pretty quickly. And, you know, who knows, maybe if that was a normal 162-game season, we would have seen him again. But because it was so short, there was no reason to even attempt to do that. But what it did allow him to do was to start his off-season throwing program on schedule build himself up and be ready for spring training just like it was any other normal year. And so in his mind, there is no difference. It's almost like he never even had the thing. Now, as always with Steven Strasburg, he can say that he can look good on the bullpen mound and live BP sessions and everything until we see him take the mound in a game situation, get through that without 
shaking his wrist, wincing, moving his, his shoulder around, those, those kind of mannerisms that we've come to uh, just to know and love over the last 10 years. And then, and this is the most important part, come back and do it again five days later without any of the issues. Then we'll know that he's good to go. But with him, you just always in the back of your mind, you worry that even when he it seems to look good, once he really ramps it up all the way and is in a game uh, situation, a competitive situation, that something could crop up. But by all accounts so far, good to go. I'm not going to be a phony. I endorse the Nats resigning Strasburg after 2019, but there's no doubt the argument against it wasn't, you know, just some ridiculous argument to make. A guy with a substantial injury history, a guy who is known, like you said, for, you know, wincing and turning his head and grabbing his neck and his calf doesn't feel good and he sweats like a hog whenever it's hot outside and everything else like that. You know, a guy with that kind of history going into his 30s, already in his 30s, like you give $245 million to a guy who fits that profile in his 30s, injury history. I mean, there are a lot of red flags there. And, you know, we just talked about the extent to which Max Scherzer has not just lived up to his contract, but exceeded it. But of course, the history in baseball is more often than not, these big money contracts do not work out. And if Strasburg doesn't stay healthy this year, or if Strasburg is healthy enough to make, say, 25, 30 starts, but isn't great, I think you do have to start to worry a little bit about that we give $245 million when we shouldn't have, especially to, you know, the learners, remember, framed it as, well, we can only afford to re-sign one, Strasburg or Rendon. It's very early with both guys in their new contracts, but Rendon was awesome last year for the Angels. The Angels stunk. Rendon did not. Strasburg obviously made just the two starts. So, uh, you know, I'm not trying to like sound the alarms already here. There's a ways to go with this deal, but it is not off to a banner start. And there are reasons to wonder about whether Strasburg is going to prove worthy uh, of this money. But I get it. Look, in the moment, World Series MVP, like what are you going to do? Not resign him? Um, So we'll see. But like we talked about earlier with Victor Robles, I think this is a big year for Strasburg. Not so much like he's got to prove himself, but if you're the Nats and if you're a Nats fan, I think he has to prove that that contract wasn't a major boo-boo. So I want to make sure I'm interpreting this uh, correctly. You're basically calling Strasburg a bust or a potential bust? Is that what you're saying if this year doesn't go right? I'm saying the contract (laughs) could start to look like a bust if he goes 0 for 2 over the first two years. Look, I do remember at the time when we're at the winter meetings in San Diego and it was that, okay, Rendon or Strasburg, and they, they signed Strasburg and there was a lot of excitement over that and excitement over the fact that it was all about he wanted to stay, that he was willing to take the deferred money uh, and take the contract to stay here for his whole career. And I do remember thinking, boy, there isn't really a whole lot of questioning here uh, from the other side of it was, was this the right move for the Nats to commit that to him? It was more about Strasburg committing to the Nationals and not the other way around. So yeah, it is something. But the, the other, this is going to be one of those arguments that'll go on forever, but I feel like I have to make this point. The either or Strasburg or Rendon, they made Rendon essentially the same offer that they made Strasburg. He turned him down. Maybe it's because it was just the deferred money. He wasn't willing to do it. You can argue about whether they, they should have to do deferred money and why not just give them guys straight up seven years and $245 million. But when it comes to these kind of signings and contracts, it goes both ways. It's about the team wanting and making the effort to resign the guy, but it's also about the guy ultimately wanting to resign. And in some respects, it really boiled down to Steven Strasburg wanted to stay a national and Anthony Rendon did not, at least under the terms that they were offered. Yeah, that's certainly something to that. I mean, look, Rendon can be kind of a peculiar guy. And Rendon, it's not like he's been some Iron Man in his career. You know, every year he's got some ailment that it it feels like should take a week to get over, and it takes like three weeks to get over. But he's really good. 
Like I said, he had an awesome 2020 for the Angels. I mean, he had a 151 OPS plus last year. And they also, I mean, at least up until now, they have not adequately replaced him. You know, a big year for Carter Keeble, and we'll talk about him uh, in the future. But, you know, it'd be one thing, like, if, if you let Rendon go, but Keeboom blossomed, or, you know, they signed Josh Donaldson and he did well, though Donaldson dealt with his own injury issues last year. But they have not adequately replaced uh, Rendon. So we'll see. It, it's early. You know, spring, we have all kinds of optimism in the spring. I, I think, you know, it, it's very possible Strasburg, I mean, he's become more of a pitcher. And, you know, we've seen him, I mean, especially in these October scenarios, saddle up and, and be a battler and be a fighter. So I think there's a very good chance that he does prove worthy of the deal. But I think you do have to ask that question of, hey, last year didn't go well. If this year doesn't go well, what are we looking at here with uh, many more years remaining on a $245 million deal? There's a long way to go on this contract, six more years. So a lot can happen in six years, especially for a guy who's, as you said, already into his 30s. So we'll see. All right. So that's the kind of newsiest stuff from spring training so far. We're going to be talking uh, tons of about, you know, the things that have happened and continue to happen in uh, future installments of the podcast. But we also wanted to have a, a little bit of, as I like to call it, scheduled fun on this podcast. And so you know, Mark has covered the Nats since the franchise came here. He has seen it all. You know, Mark is not a Johnny-come-lately where he started covering the team in 2012 or anything like that. He suffered through the back-to-back 100-loss years. He was there for Jim Bowden and Jose Rio and Smiley Gonzalez and Paul LaDuca and everything else that happened in those uh, nascent years of the Nationals being in D.C. You're giving me PTSD with those names. Yes. <laughs> so with all of your spring training experience, we thought we'd kind of lean on you a little bit here and maybe do a, a little bit of story time with Mark in terms of just you know, fun, quirky, interesting things that you came across in your time covering Nat spring training over the years. Well, I'll, first I'll say that this is the first time I haven't been at spring training in person, 17 years, and it's really strange, and uh, I wish I could be there. I understand why I'm not. Uh, hopefully a year from now, I can get back down there again. But there are so many stories that have come out of it, especially in those early years in Vieira. Some of you I know out there went to Vieira. You know what it was like there. Um you know, very different than West Palm Beach. <laughs> Bit of a small town. Uh, it's grown a lot over the years, but not a place that you describe as having a lot of charm to it. And certainly in those early days, there wasn't much going on. You looked out from the stadium and you're looking at literally at cow pastures, uh, b- controlled brush fires, uh, and the big government building that sat out behind the right field fence. So on top of all that, there wasn't a whole lot of real fine dining, at least not right there. Over the years, we learned where to go, how to find places in Melbourne, Cocoa Beach, and, and even parts of Vieira. But in the immediate area, not a whole lot. So this story comes from the spring of 2006. If you'll remember when they traded for Alfonso Soriano, big deal when they traded for him. He was going to be the star of the team. But there was a big issue. He was a second baseman for his whole career, and the Nationals had decided that he was going to be a left fielder because they had Jose Vidro at second base, and God forbid they move Jose Vidro out of second base. It had to be Alfonso Soriano who was the one to move out to the outfield, which in the, in the end, it was the right move. He wound up you know, becoming a decent outfielder, at least with a good arm. That helped keep his career going. But it was contentious, and they never really had the discussion with him before he arrived there. <laughs> And so what they had to actually do once he got there was Frank Robinson, the manager, Jim Bowden, the GM, Soriano, and I think maybe Jose Rijo, who was Bowden's assistant and and sort of liaison for all the Latin American players, went out to dinner to kind of have this conversation. Let's get to know each other. Let's talk about how you are going to make the switch to the outfield. And I wrote, you know, that next morning in the Washington Times, I'd heard from someone. It wasn't that I knew it for a fact, but I had heard where they went for dinner. 
and it was Cracker Barrel, which, you know, in Vieira is about as good as it gets. And so I made a little bit of a snide remark about that. And, and it was more of a, of a, a knock on Vieira than it was on them because it's like, you know, where else are you going to go? It wasn't like there were a lot of choices there. Well, Jim Bowden was not happy that that was out there, that I put that out there. And, and the next day he and he loved to do this, you know, on any given day, he could just, you know, blow his stack at anybody for any given reason. And he he was really upset. And he said, hey, listen, we don't go to Cracker Barrel. What are you doing writing about that? We're not taking him to Cracker Barrel. We went to Perkins. <laughs> As if that was the fine dining that was available in Vieira. So the big Alfonso Soriano meeting to try to convince him to move to left field took place at Perkins, not a Cracker Barrel. I regret the air all these years later. Well, there's no shame in eating a Cracker Barrel. I have eaten a Cracker Barrel. It's actually pretty good. But that story is just so fitting for that time in Nationals history, like for so many different reasons. And <laughs> that they would go to eat even at a Perkins, man. That's just awesome. That's that's as good as they had. And 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 even after all that, people remember this. He actually didn't take the field the first night he was supposed to play left field. He left the ballpark. They took the field with eight guys and caused a whole commotion. And it wasn't until after that that they finally got through to him and convinced him to make the move to left field. It was a big controversy for a few days there. Yeah. Now, he ended up having a 40-40 season, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he was and, and, and getting a huge contract from the Cubs, which, by the way, is another one of those contracts that didn't exactly work out for the team that signed him. No, it didn't. Although, what, what's always interesting to me about the Soriano discussion is this. So I remember that summer of 06, a lot of debate about should the Nats trade Soriano? And of course, they should have, but they didn't. And the compensatory pick they got for him, mm-hmm. they turned into Jordan Zimmerman. So- you know, that's one of those things where you say, well, it kind of worked out in a pretty good way for him. It did. And I remember that afternoon on the trade deadline as Bowden was explaining this to us and telling us that the trade offers they got were not as good in his mind as what they would get in a compensatory pick. And I never found out 100 percent what the best offer they had was. I heard that it might have been Kevin Slowey of the Twins or Eric Ibar of the uh, Angels. Oh, wow. And Bowden was adamant that the, the draft pick would be better compensation. And at the time, that was seen as ridiculous. Who would value a draft pick like that? A lot of things you can knock Jim Bowden for, but I give him credit on this. He was ahead of the curve on that one. He did understand the value of draft picks. You see nowadays, teams value those way more than they would have in 2006. No doubt. It worked out. I mean, Jordan Zimmerman was very good for the Nats. Hasn't worked out for him well since the Nats, but was awesome for the Nats for a good chunk of time there. So, All right. Well, I would say a successful first full-fledged effort of the Nats Chat Podcast. We'll see. I guess others should judge that kind of a thing, but a lot of fun talking Nats with you. You can tweet Mark at Mark Zuckerman on Twitter. Uh, You can reach me on Twitter at Al Galdi. And don't forget, you can tweet the show at Nats underscore chat on Twitter, and you can email the show to Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Mark, we will reconvene later in the week. Looking forward to it, man. This was fun. I hope they all turn out as well as this. I hope everyone out there enjoys it and subscribes, likes, downloads, tell all your friends. Uh, We're hoping to build a really nice community here of Nats fans who want to hear some good uh, talk and analysis every day about them. Absolutely. The Nats Chat Podcast is a thing. From Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you again soon. No balls and a strike to Soriano. Braves have been wearing him out on fastballs out away from him. He'll make a mistake on the inner half, though. We oh, saw no. that up in Washington. One for four last night. One for three tonight. A couple of strikeouts. 
six home runs in his last 29 at bats though off of Braves pitching but they've changed their pattern a little bit on him. Two strike pitch in the air center field deep Andrew as far as he can go and the Nationals are in front. With two outs a double a single by the pitcher and a two run bomb to straightaway center has Washington in front five to three.